When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is SyrupCast, episode two. Uh, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Douglas Soltis. Say oh, hi. And oh, yeah. uh, the commander-in-chief of Mobile Syrup, Ian Hardy, the one and oh. only. This is the probably the first time you've ever seen him, so uh, take a good hard look. That's, uh, that's the progenitor of I don't even uh, Mobile Syrup. <laughs> well, we will we'll explain it to you. What does progenitor mean? It means the father, the creator. Hence you the are, shining dome. You see that dome over there? You are Project Lita. That was an Orphan Black reference. All right, so we have a lot to talk about today. It's been a very busy week, and the week started with the Canadian Telecom Summit last Monday, and uh, with a couple big announcements. First of all, Wind Mobile is here to stay, one of Tony Lacavera's most passionate speeches. We've heard a lot of passionate speeches from the uh, WIND chairman, but this was one that uh, people will remember for a long time, largely because um, it was on the back of some very positive numbers, and uh, another announcement by um, Pierre Dion, the new CEO of Quebecor, the next day for the closing keynote, uh, talking about how his company is ready to take on Rogers Bell and TELUS. So, what do you guys think of that? Let's uh, let's start with you, Doug. What, what do you think of uh, those announcements? I think they uh, I think they listened to our first podcast. <laughs> complaining about a, a lack of competition. No, I think um, I think speeches are great, and uh, we'll see if they can back up their words. Uh, with actual investment in growth across Canada. Uh, I, I know that, you know, like you guys have been going to that uh, telecom summit for, for years now, so you could probably speak to um, how often the tone of those things is reflected in actions going forward, but I think it's, I think it's what we need. I think uh, personally, with the frustration that I have with the, the big three carriers in Canada, you know, it, it's, it's a necessary counterbalance. Ian, did you get that impression? I mean, did you did you think of the, everybody as sort of believing what Dion and Lacavera were saying? Well, we we've been hearing about this for years, ever since the the wire these people came into wireless, right? So yeah. Lacavera has been saying that since 2008. Videotron, I remember that when they were, and MNVO, and then they gradually built up, right? But it's been going on since 2008, 2009, or 2010. And then slowly they have about, what was the number, 735,000 yeah. subscribers mm-hmm. um, over four years, five years. So I remember when uh, Lacavera was saying they're going to have 1.5 million people within three years, 1.5 million paying subscribers within three years, and they're not even halfway there. Mm-hmm. Now, some things have dramatically changed clearly, right? But it, it really, for the past number of years, it's always been we were going to be the fourth 
national carrier. Now across the country, that's that's a big place to cover. They're installing their own towers. They're building the whole network themselves. The tone of the speech, because we were, we were both there, he was very passionate about it. Was what he was saying, right? Um, I've never heard him speak those numbers before. This year was very different than last year. Last year was about the competition. It was in this year's, but this year was about all about numbers, mm-hmm. um, investment <clears throat> levels, subscriber numbers, ARPU, so, all that stuff. So it's more about yeah. what they're doing rather than what's what they're fighting against. So do you, do you think that 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 indicates that maybe there's a, a bit of a like a, a tipping point where they're finally ready to back that up, and or that they're, they're that investment that they've been putting in for years is finally start starting to to show. Yeah. Uh, yes, and a little bit of no, right? Because right now they've reached a somewhat tipping point of where they can go for money. Uh, many people have given them money. Many people have backed out. So now they're they need investment to get to that next level, specifically for LTE, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, and Greg from Greg uh, O'Brien from Cart raised a really good point, um, saying, "What is what is Wynn going to do next? Are they going to go for an IPO?" If, if that is one solution, then they have the numbers now to back it up. If not, these numbers could specifically talk to potential investors who need to know these numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, for Videotron, they, they really have a strong chance of really making an impact in Canada because they've dominated Quebec. The big carriers like Rogers, Bell, and TELUS are really second to them. Um, because they have such a strong presence in Quebec. Now they bought Spectrum across Ontario, and where was it? Where were, where was the other parts where they bought Spectrum? Well, okay, so let's give a bit of background. So, um, Wynn didn't buy any Spectrum. Their their uh, 700 megahertz right. um, Spectrum purchase was held up by their parent company, Vimplecom, who is uh, mostly Russian, a little bit Dutch. They own a bunch of carriers in a number of countries around Europe, um, and they wanted to take uh, full control of Wind Mobile Canada, and the government wouldn't let them. So they said, no, we're not going to put in any more money to be a 49% owner. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their what their uh, ownership numbers are, but it's not it, it's certainly not 50%. So even though the, um, the amount of foreign ownership for ISPs or telcos that uh, have t- less than 10% market share is uh, is allowed now. You're allowed to have more foreign ownership, but basically an infinite amount of foreign ownership that isn't being taken advantage of because the wind's parent just doesn't think that they're going to get any value from not owning a controlling share of the company. So Videotron is basically their only hope. Mobilicity is done. Public Mobile is now Telus. So when you're thinking about it like that, um, some of Dion's statements, um, and I'll read them to you. Uh, are, are very interesting. He's saying, we are uniquely positioned to provide highly attractive wireless plans to Canadians looking for top quality service at very competitive prices. They've invested $1.6 billion since 2008. Now that's not that much when you compare the CapEx to something like Rogers, Bell, or TELUS, but it's still a lot of money. And if they actually partner up with Mobilicity or with uh, Wind, that could potentially be a mobile, a, a national network. So considering who they're they're speaking to there, um, and Ian kind of alluded to this before, is is that a sales job? That they're you know cons- like the audience that they're speaking to. Why why are they now suddenly, are are they trying to position themselves and present themselves as a 
as a as a partner for either an investment or like a direct partnership? Like, what's what's the what's the what's the mandate behind that sudden new uh, self promotion? Well, the, on Videotron's side, it's this: they have a bunch of spectrum, then they want to use it, but they want to make it cheaper for them to roam on their partner networks. So the government of Canada is going to start legislating domestic roaming rates because there's no way that wind or mobilicity or or Videotron are going to be able to build out a national network in the time that it takes for LTE and things like that to become for, to be implemented. So what they're doing is they are now paying Rogers, who's their partner in many parts of the country, to roam on their network. Right now it's a 2G network, but later this year the government of Canada is going to be legislating 3G um, wholesale rates essentially for these carriers, which means it's going to be a lot cheaper for us to go outside of a wind home or a Videotron home network and actually go on their 3G. So this is basically just a sales pitch to ensure that the the government of Canada keeps to their word on wireless on domestic wireless roaming. Okay. Uh, so then, a, a question to both of you: uh, at the 2015 summit, what do you expect uh, Wind and Videotron to be saying? <laughs> That's a good point. I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because I highly doubt that Wynn's going to be the same company as it is today. Even though they're growing, they're not growing fast enough. And I think, A, Mobilicity's not going to be there. I think they're going to be done by the end of the year. Uh, whether they consolidate with Wind or Videotron or both remains to be seen. Videotron is not going anywhere because they have 500,000 subscribers in Quebec alone. They're actually becoming an incumbent because they don't have to focus on building out a national network. If they partner with Wind and they take Wind Spectrum and they actually take Wind's towers in Ontario, BC, Alberta, and and places where they already have service, they don't need to build their own towers. They can just augment what Wind already provides and then use the spectrum that they bought during the 700 megahertz auction to roll out LTE. That would be the ideal situation. I concur. Yeah. I fully okay. agree. So. Okay. So they, they, and if they want to compete on a larger scale, there's going to have to be some, some consolidation, whether it's mobilicity and, um, well, mo mo mobilicity is a whole new game, um, but somebody will have to join together to compete, mm -hmm. uh, and and the government will need to assist in this. Right. Otherwise, it'll be exactly how it is today. Videotron will stay in Quebec, um, and really dominate there, um, but clearly they have interest in expanding outward. For long term, right? Okay. Wind, how how important how important is LTE to wind? I mean, that's what that's what I asked Lacavera. I said, what is what is your major uh, growing pain? And he said, well, you know, a lot of people call me and they say I need LTE, and and he says, why? Why do you need LTE? We have 21 megabit HSPA plus. Uh, we're upgrading all of our towers to 42 megabits. Why do you need LTE? They go. I don't know, because the incumbents told me to. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, is that the, the incumbents have made it their end game to convince people that wind has a small network and they have an under, that they have an underpowered network. And it's working because 735,000 subscribers, while impressive, is nowhere near the 9 million on Rogers, 7 million, 7.5 million on TELUS and Bell, not to mention the fact that TELUS and Bell share a national network. So, you know, that you can say is they have 15 million subscribers between them. I mean, uh, 
the wind is really nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. Right. Yeah, the marketing budgets also have to be crazy. So I guess I, I had two questions, and I think you're leading into my second one, which I'll now ask first, is how do um, Bell, Rogers, and Telus respond to this, or do they keep doing what they're doing? Um, and then the, back to what Ian was saying before, um, does the government keep their word in, in allowing a potential partnership to happen so we have a, a fourth player in this market? Yeah, I, I think they they have to keep their word on domestic roaming. I think that is going to change. Um, they also said that they have made it their number one priority to have a fourth national carrier in every region. But as you know, Ian has said many times, that's just it's very difficult. It's not it's not easy to build a network. Mm-hmm. I think isn't isn't there a fourth carrier in every province though? Like yes, there's Saskel, M MTS. Um, Videotron, mm-hmm. Eastlink, right? So there's a carrier in every province. Right. Um, it really just depends upon, I guess, you, you, you asked about what Rogers and Bell and Telus are going to do. I think they're going to continue hammering down on every possible angle to diffuse, us, to diffuse that there is actually another option available to consumers. Um, and that they've been doing successfully for the last number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever through every every means possible. A few last summer, um, one of the execs at the uh, telecom summit called it the summer of of discontent or something like that. Yeah. I believe summer because they because they were against the big three were against the government and the government was going against the big three about the potential of a a big U.S. carrier, specifically Verizon, potentially coming into Canada, and they spent a lot of money. Um, convincing or trying to convince or coerce Canadians saying that we don't need another player here. We are fine just the way we are. Um, and I think if it comes to the fact that uh, wind is wind will get stronger or Videotron or merger will happen, we'll see that round two happen again where the big three will say, you don't need to go there. You are perfect with us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's a harder argument to make against the growth of an incumbent versus a foreign entity, which was, was just so hypocritical anyways in the case of uh, Bell specifically. But um, So I'm going to ask this question again because you guys kind of dodged it a little bit. But 2015, what, what speeches are Wind and Videotron making? I would what say... Are, 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 they, are, I, are they pointing to the I, successful I, partnership they've made? Are they saying... Yeah. You know, we need more government help, or they, you know, what are they going to say? I don't think it'll be government help. I think that it'll be, um, there will, wind, wind and mobile, let's say wind and Videotron, if they get to a point where a merger would happen, um, which will take some time, uh, I think they will, it'll be something like we are stronger together, we are your fourth national carrier, the one you've always wanted. Mm-hmm. And look and look at how much service we can give you for half the price. We because have twenty-four hours no, service, cheaper. Cheaper. They have unlimited U.S. They have yeah. these are the things. These are the only things right now that Wind can differentiate on. They can't differentiate on speed, and they can't differentiate on coverage, but they can differentiate on U.S. roaming and international calling and things like that that Rogers and Bell and Telus are just not willing to put in their current plans. If Rogers charge $125 for a 6-gig plan like they do today, that 
actually roamed in the US and included that six gig bucket, I would totally spend that money because that's value. I get value from that. If you're, There are hundreds of thousands or millions of Canadians every year that go to the US and pay extra for those roaming plans. Win th says that there are 30,000 people already on that uh, unlimited USA package and that's only after four months and that's pretty impressive if you think about it. So yeah. I think that uh, I think that they'll be there. I don't know if Win Win Mobile will be there in um, the guise of Win Mobile. Uh, they may form a new company. I don't think that Videotron is going to be that fourth carrier. I think they'll probably rebrand if they do. But who knows? You're right. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not really going to speculate about what's going to happen in 2015. But what I am going to speculate on is that, uh, and moving on a little bit, um, BlackBerry. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, so now, so, now that we've we've satisfied our government mandated um, telecom carrier talk, we have to go straight to BlackBerry. Well, no. It, I mean, seriously, it was a huge week for BlackBerry. This was one of their most impressive weeks in terms of uh, product announcements and rollouts and finances since uh, the beginning of 2013, and. Uh, you know, Doug, you wrote a very impassioned piece on this last week on how uh, BlackBerry kind of sold out their native developer, um, their native developers. So let's oh, talk. Oh God. Um, uh, okay. okay. So I would say that rather than impassioned, I would say it was uh, clinical and analytic. Uh, <laughs> no, I. So I think I think the biggest. I think there was an impassioned response to to what I wrote, but I think that there's a bit of a misconception about uh, my articulation of what BlackBerry is doing, which I think is very smart. Okay, I think so they're making strong moves. I before, think, before we get in that, sorry, let's let tell us what BlackBerry is doing. Um, there, so what you're seeing is the results of some of the things that Chen has now been able to put in place. You're seeing the transition away from uh, a company that was trying to straddle the line between consumer and enterprise and, and not being able to grow out that ecosystem to a company that is lean and focused purely upon enterprise services. So they've, they've been slowly moving away from trying to build their own uh, app ecosystem. And you saw with the, the Amazon licensing deal where they essentially have uh, you know, given up their own ecosystem to have Amazon's app ecosystem on, on there, which makes sense because they're both essentially piggybacking off of Android's ecosystem anyways. Right. Um, allows them to focus their, their, their work and their development on the few productivity and core enterprise apps and services that will make a difference to their customers. Because uh, it's, it, it's very hard to build a consumer ecosystem. It's something that it took Google years to do. It took App, Apple years to do. It took Amazon years to do. Microsoft, as big as the company is and the amount of money that they've spent, hasn't been able to do it as fully as those other people. BlackBerry was never going to be able to do that. So for, for Chen to come in and, you know, uh, coldly, coolly, uh, dispassionately say, you know, this is not our focus. We're, we're, we're cutting a line on this and we're, we're going to focus on what matters, I think is, I think is really smart. So the focus of my my editorial was more to maybe 
the developers, the longtime native BlackBerry developers, mm -hmm. who a year ago, prior to Alexandra's switch uh, to lead up the, the new Cunix uh, Cloud division, um, who are being told, you know, you know, native BlackBerry is better than anything else. We're going to support you. We're going to give. Uh, you're going to make this much money in your first year. We're going to guarantee that and back that. We haven't heard much from that program since um, they put Marty Malik in charge of a merged Dev Relations division, who is now out. Who uh, probably won't be replaced in the sense that I think there's going to be more restructuring going on. Um, mm -hmm. I think. I think that merger. I, I think generally when you take. Uh, developer relations group, which is its own group, and it gets merged into another division based upon business alliances, that should be a warning sign that maybe uh, at, a, at a grassroots level, building a developer community is becoming a secondary focus. Mm -hmm. And then six months later, when the head of that um, leaves because of the company's transition to uh, enterprise approach, uh, right at the time where BlackBerry signs a deal, to get all of Amazon's apps on their device. I was just basically trying to let any native BlackBerry developer know uh, what BlackBerry can't come out and tell them, which is, you know, you have to diversify your portfolio. Mm -hmm. you know, built for BlackBerry first is probably not the best idea if you're not making a productivity or enterprise app. Um, are, there, are there any developers who are actually still building for BlackBerry first? Consumer developers that are putting their money into BlackBerry exclusively or first? I mean... Not, not many. Like, you know, in my article I pointed out that, you know, the score... Like, they're, they're, I think most people see the writing on the wall, but I, also, just from the response you see that there are people who have been BlackBerry developers since there have been BlackBerry apps. And we're not talking like BlackBerry 7, we're talking like BlackBerry 5. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there are still those people. There, I'm not going to name names, but there are people who have been making great BlackBerry apps who who really prioritize their BlackBerry development first. Who, um, and just in the response that I got on on Twitter, you know, who are still making money. I'm I'm just trying to let them know, uh, for those really small garage shops, that you're not going to see the level of support and investment in either native tool sets or in community support or in promotion, like you know. BlackBerry has deprioritized their own app store. They brought in uh, like a, a competitive app store onto their platform, which has a much better portfolio. So yes, but it, I mean, can't we see that? Sorry to interrupt, but can't we see that as as a way to allow for John Chen's dwindling consumer base to say, "Yeah, I can use Instagram. I can finally watch Netflix on my BlackBerry." So screw off because I still love my BlackBerry. This is their way of saying this is it's okay to love BlackBerry because we have all these apps and they may run at ninety percent of what they would run on an Android phone, but at least you still have your keyboard. You know, it's like I have my Q10, but in those in those few minutes a day that I'm in line for uh, you know groceries or waiting for a Starbucks or Tim Hortons, Ian, I can yes. use my Q10 to watch. Uh, to watch some, you know, five minutes of uh, How I Met Your Mother or something like that's that's really what they're doing. Yeah, right. and sorry, and I think and I think that you're completely right. And as I said in the piece, I agree. I think it's a smart idea. I think they should have done it years ago instead of trying to build it. I think uh, I, I posted something reveals some information about 
you know, there was negotiations with Google to get Google services on, and the cost of that would have been putting the Play Store on BlackBerry. I think they could have done that then. I don't, I don't think BlackBerry has ever been well served by trying to be a consumer company. I think it's great for BlackBerry. I think it's great for uh, BlackBerry smartphone users, those maybe those prosumer users. Um, they're finally getting what they want, My, which is why if you're a native BlackBerry developer, you have to be thinking seriously now about, you know, is it really worth doing a native BlackBerry app that sits in the BlackBerry world versus uh, making a really great Android app that I can put in the Amazon store that's probably going to get more exposure anyways because consumers are going to be happy with that. I, th- I think I think it's a it's a great win for BlackBerry. I think it again shows that Chen has no sentimental ties uh, to the past, right. and he's, he's he can easily make strong moves. I'm I'm just raising the you know I do have sentimental ties to the past. I did work at BlackBerry. Uh, I worked with some of the people on the developer side who are now being deprioritized in terms of BlackBerry's eyes. Very justifiably, I might add. Like, BlackBerry should be doing this and must be doing this, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to... That, that's why I'll take the time to say, hey, developers, unless you haven't seen the writing on the wall, this is what's happening. Right. So, Ian, um, let's, let's talk about the new BlackBerry devices. So they're coming out with two devices later this year. Uh, the BlackBerry Classic, which has that toolbar that I hate so much, and I oh. hate I hate that they're coming back with it. I'm I'm totally fine saying that, um, and I I think that this this crazy phablet uh, called the uh, BlackBerry Passport is uh, is is an interesting product. Um, what, what do you think about them? Well, I I think I've only had. I actually don't think I've even owned a BlackBerry because my first device was the Motorola Q. So the yeah. Motorola Q, wow! Just so a much long time ago. The vitriol so, coming in the comments for this podcast are going to be so high. You're, oh the man! Q was your wow. <laughs> but yeah, so when I, and that was like a, a Windows Windows Mobile device years ago. Um, the company I worked with at that time never even entertained a BlackBerry. Um, so I've never earned one. Never earned one. Hilarious. Um, I never purchased one, but my brother did. My brother was on a bold 9,000. I was waiting for the Q10. The Q10 finally came out. He went to it, um, and he loved it. And then he got frustrated by it because the OS, he couldn't understand BlackBerry 10. And then he got an iPhone. So I think... The time in between, and, and, was, and I'll make a reference to it, he got so used to the experience of an iPhone that he f- completely forgot about why he loved the BlackBerry. I think where the Classic is going, it could be a great device for those people who currently have a BlackBerry and don't want to move to a BlackBerry 10. I think it might be a good transition. It's still from what the pictures, I haven't seen one in person. I think the pictures still look like the bold 9900, even the 9000. Um, brings BlackBerry 10, it brings that famous, I think what they called the belt with the navigation mm-hmm. keys. Um, it, it looks like an older device, but still has the BlackBerry feel to it. The Passport, I have no idea. What it is. No idea what that is aiming for. Well, uh, it's, it's aiming it's aiming for the Galaxy Note user who wants a keyboard. I mean, they like it's a 4. Point, it's a 4.5 inch screen that's 
1440 by 1440 resolution. Like this is one of the highest resolution, highest pixel density density devices on the market, and you're looking at those who want a massive screen but don't want to have to give up their keyboard. I mean, on paper, the Passport makes a lot of sense. When we started hearing rumors about Windermere and what it would have and its screen resolution, it actually made sense. You know, this is the way the market is going, bigger phones. But BlackBerry doesn't appeal to anybody unless it has a keyboard. We've learned that. Chen knows that. The, you know, the Z3 is a special kind of device, but by and large, the Z10 and the Z30 were, I wouldn't say failures, but they, they failed to impress. They failed to sell at the, at the numbers that BlackBerry would have liked. So you know, let's well, look at... I, well, we touched upon this last week, actually, where you know, the Z10 and the Z30 were built by a company that was going after a completely different consumer than they are now. Correct. So I, I know you hate the return of the belt, but the only people still using Blackberries are the people who were never interested in the Z10 and the Z30 because all they wanted was the Blackberry that they've always had that didn't crash, that didn't get memory leaks, and could probably run a few better apps. So the I think it's very it's it's part of the reason why they're bringing back the 9900, and it's part of the reason why the the classic looks exactly like the 9900. Um, I, I, it's another one of those uh, smart Chen moves to get them generating creating revenue again while they while they build up the things that are you know really going to help the country uh, the company for the next five to ten years with the internet internet of things stuff and the the broader enterprise services and the, the thing that uh, yes and and the country so, wow it's the the deep seated patriotism that I have in all my comments about BlackBerry just bursts forth sometimes but to the to the passport you know that's where I'm like I I see the reasons for the classic the passport might be a Hail Mary, it might be, like, in, in the meetings that they've had with their customers, which the reason why they brought back the 9900 and the reason why they're doing the Classic, because, you know, Chen, Chen jumped in and totally changed uh, BlackBerry's product portfolio for this year, right? Um, you know, they might have heard enough to make them think that they have a market for that for that Passport phone. Um, I, I, the word, I, I just want to say that it's batshit crazy. And it's, it's batshit crazy, and it might work, and it might not. But at, at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, why don't they just do a slider? Like, why don't they just put a slider? Totally. On oh, there there like, would be so food. many people who would love that phone. <laughs> but, That's all to do again, guys. But if if they bring back a slider, which who knows, they might. They brought the passport. Uh, think about the amount of press they would get. It would probably be ridiculously bad press, which they don't need, but it would certainly get some attention. Not that the attention's good, but it would get the attention that they could. I don't even know where I'm going with that. Just I don't know. I, I don't think they'd get more attention. They don't. They wouldn't get more attention than with the passport. I mean, the passport was just absurd, and it's absurd because I know I can name 20 people off the top of my head that would wait in line for a phone like that. I seriously I do, and that's I mean, because go, go. no, I I can't because my mom would not appreciate it. No, but seriously, like it's. It's it's for people who cannot get rid of their keyboards but want a bigger screen. I mean, it makes sense on paper. You know what's interesting about that, and what I haven't seen. Like the only quick, quick overview that I've seen was that link from from BNN. Apparently, the the keyboard is <laughs> supposed to be like a swipe type keyboard that's 
somewhat unique where you just swipe right. over the keyboard where you don't have to touch it. Yeah. Um, so there might be some hidden technology within that device that uh, will be a selling point of some sort, which might be interesting to see whenever it's available, right? Yeah, I, might... I think... Go ahead. I was just going to say, but that, again, that might confuse their the customer that they're trying to sell it to. Like, they're, they're trying to sell these devices to people who are still using their BlackBerry 7 or earlier device because they didn't trust... They, they literally want the same experience because they, they, they use it for email, they use it for BBM, and they don't trust anything else. And maybe, maybe the Classic will fill that need. And, you know, I'm surprised for you to say, Daniel, that you know 20 people that be trusted in that device. I'm, I'm interested in trying it out. I'll put it that way. I'm interested in seeing how it goes. But just, just the aesthetics of it, I'm just like, wow. Okay, let me like give you an example. I was at North by Northeast on sun Saturday night, and I went to a concert at uh, Young and Dundas Square. So it was a free concert out in the open. There were tons of kids, probably... I'd say half of the audience was under 20. I saw so many bold 9700s there, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And what this says to me is that these kids that, that love chatting, that want, they want Snapchat, they want uh, Kick, they want WhatsApp, and they want all those Android apps, but they want it with a hardware keyboard, and they want a big screen. I seriously think that the Passport is not just going to appeal to executives with holsters on their belts. I actually think that it's being aimed at kids under 20. I do, and I, really? and I think that there is a serious market for that because, you know, I mean, we've, we've reported on this so many times. Kids send, like, 40 texts a day on average, right? If, if BlackBerry can somewhat reproduce the experience of, an, of a high-end Android or an iPhone with BlackBerry 10, with the security, with the App Store and that keyboard, they're actually not going to have a bad product on their hands. Well, then how come the Q5 didn't get stellar results? Isn't that available on most carriers for, like, a hundred bucks? Well, I, I don't know, but the Q5 is a tiny phone, and who knows? I mean, maybe it did get a bunch of... I mean, it, we don't know that it didn't get a bunch of sales. It, it, I've seen a bunch of them out there. Dan, um, I understand your, your argument as to how that device could be compelling, but I think, first of all, BlackBerry's not even looking to sell that market anymore. They only came into it accidentally. I think the real reason why a lot of those young people that you saw still have Blackberries is because they got them on really, really cheap deals, um, and they, they might be sticking with that phone because it's the Blackberries are fairly durable and it has a keyboard and they're going to keep using it, um, but that doesn't mean that when they eventually have to upgrade that they're going to upgrade to another phone. I feel like, you know, BlackBerry's entry point into the youth consumer market was because they were low-end, cheaper phones. Uh, I don't think that they're going to buy... I don't think Passport's going to be priced for that market, and I don't think that if they're looking to upgrade, they're necessarily going to go with that phone. Um, no, no, you're absolutely right. But I'm, I, I do see it as an aspirational device for some kids. And that's more than can be said for any BlackBerry to BlackBerry 10 device on the market except for the Q10. So I I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, I Kids I in think, Indonesia maybe, but not not at Young and Dundas Square. That's fair. That's fair. So but let's the, at, at at the end of the day, BlackBerry will market it as a as a device that will help people be more productive. Yeah. That's that's their whole marketing thing. What, Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This enterprise or consumer, the bottom line is that this device, whether the classic or the passport, will help you be more productive as a human being. Whatever that means anymore. True. So speaking of productivity, let's point our phones at a bunch of products and buy them in one click. <laughs> That's true productivity. That's true. That is modern consumer productivity. I'm talking, of course, about the Fire Phone. So I uh, I spoke a lot about this phone um, this week. I, I went on BNN and I spoke about the Fire Phone to uh, an audience of um, financial and business watchers. And the feedback I got was that nobody understands why this phone exists. Amazon does not know how to market their phones. This is what I've heard. Uh, why would you want a phone that makes it easy for you to buy more Amazon stuff? Okay. Obviously that is not just the, you know, that's not the only feature and that is one of many uh, Amazon related uh, services that are offered or in the Canadian case of Amazon phones or tablets or whatever, not offered. But Doug, what do you think? Does does the Fire Phone appeal to you at all? I mean, just from a consumer perspective? Okay, first of all, I'm going to jump in and say that not only were you on BNN, you were also on CBC. I think I saw you on uh, Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> you were there for the World Cup coverage. You were I... all over the place talking about this phone, and you did an amazing job. Thank um, you. Secondly, I think the level of criticism raised against this phone has been so poor as to to show how most tech journalism is an articulation of personal preference <clears throat> rather than specific business case because first of all Amazon knows exactly how to sell this phone it's gonna sell it on Amazon to Amazon customers in bundles with other Amazon products and with Prime they have their own sales channel they don't have to worry about um, uh, building stores like Microsoft does to showcase the Amazon experience. They already have a built-in channel to sell this thing, and they will bundle it to the point where it makes sense. Second of all, Amazon is not in the business of changing the the mobile or the smartphone space. They're not trying to compete with uh, Apple or Microsoft or HTC or Samsung as being a hardware vendor. They're literally in the business of getting more revenue from their existing customers, the people who use Amazon to buy things or who use Amazon services like Prime. This is the, this is the mm-hmm. perfect device for those people. Um, secondly, I think the ability to take a picture of something and then buy it instantly is really friggin' cool and will lead to a lot of money. Uh, I think, uh, although we don't get to enjoy them, I think Amazon has some really great uh, entertainment services that uh, people will get to use for free with this phone for a year. Uh, I think uh, Bezos made a really strong point when he said that people who join Prime uh, after getting you know, a, a Fire tablet or things like this don't leave Prime. Mm-hmm. So this being a lead-in uh, to their other services, which are 
uh, continuous revenue generation. Like, it makes so much sense for Amazon to do this. Um, it might not set the world on fire. Ha. Huh. Boom. All right, guys. Um, it, it might not take a huge portion of the, the smartphone market. Um, I think being on, on one carrier hurts it there. Obviously, you can buy it directly through Amazon. Uh, I think this is a first step, though, and, you know, they're not going to reveal any numbers, but this makes sense for Amazon to do. If HTC did this or Samsung, like, if anybody else did this, it would be a really bad idea, but that's why it's smart for Amazon to do it. Amazon's a different type of company, and I think the level of criticism where it's like, you know, why would I want to buy more Amazon stuff? I don't need that. Oh, it's uh, it's not a 1080p screen. It just completely misses the the target audience for this thing. I think it's I think it's going to sell really well. I don't think we're going to know how well because Amazon will never tell us. But we'll know when they release uh, another version of this phone in a year from now on two more carriers at a at a better price, or they figured it out. Like generation one, I think it's it's really interesting. I think yeah. what they're doing with the 3D interface is cool. If we want to talk about like the scary aspects of the actual technology behind it, but I, I think you were the, one of the few people who actually came out and said accurately really, how smart this is for Amazon. It, it's a it's a very very cool product because it's selling it in three ways, right? There's no way that you say that you say, hey, it's, there's an Amazon product that makes it easier to buy things, and people go, oh, that's so cool. They may think that and they may want it, but they never actually go out and buy it and replace their iPhone or Android for that one feature. But getting people in the door with this dynamic perspective screen is a huge, huge benefit for them. That's, I mean, insofar as it's a gimmick, and it is a gimmick, there's no question about whether dynamic perspective is a gimmick, because developers will ignore it the way that they ignored 3D on the LG Optimus 3D, and the HTC Optimus 3D, and the Samsung Optimus 3D, they're all the same product to me because they lasted one generation, right? Nobody remembers 3D phones. Even though they were there, they shot in 3D, they had 3D screens, they were just useless. This is not a 3D screen. This is them using 3D as a way to get you in the door to sell a phone that does a lot of stuff. So I agree with you. It's a brilliant move, and the fact that they're launching an AT&T that's irrelevant. They're only doing this to as a pilot project. There's no question that eventually, if they can, they will launch in Canada. And that's another thing. Is this a big deal? Does it matter that they're only launching in the States on one carrier right now? What do you think, think so. Ian? I, I don't know. What do you think about exclusives these days? You think they're, 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 they're good or bad? Who knows, right? But in, in regards to, to Canada, I don't know. You think, well, think a lot of people would buy a phone that has limited services available to us? Yeah, Just I mean, it, it, again, we don't know that they won't have those services available in a year, right? That's that's the whole thing, is that Amazon has slowly, and so has other, we have a, an article coming out about this, so many other companies like Apple and Google, they've been increasing their content availability in Canada over the last couple of years to the yeah. point where it's on point. It's not the same as U.S., but it's on point. And I think that that's something to take note. Amazon doesn't tend to market their stuff in Canada nearly as quickly as they do in the States because their, their, their ecosystem, it's, it's like a connecting set of highways. Everything 
in Amazon. Everything in the States runs better on Amazon. They have their distribution network set up perfectly. They have their content set up perfectly. And they have their sales channel set up perfectly. And I think that they are not going to mess with a good thing unless they really have to. So um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for the Amazon phone. But uh, it's, it was a long time coming. Yeah, we can, and people can read our upcoming tete-a-tete -tete for more of a discussion on this. Uh, I think you're right. Amazon's business is saturating as much revenue as possible from its its actual market share, rather than being in a, in a growth stage. Um, but just just two things quickly. You know, the first iPhone launched on one carrier as well. Like, on it's, the same it's not, carrier. Yes, on the same carrier. It's you know, it is a trial project. Uh, also, you couldn't buy the first iPhone on Amazon. <laughs> When it launched, so I think that makes it that makes up for a lot of the availability issues. Um, and second, you know, with the LG phones uh, and the the 3D technology, you know, they didn't have the backing of someone as big as Amazon who could really say, uh, "This is important. We're doubling down on this." Right. Um, you might see this technology eventually come to their the tablets that they're selling, and if they make it a priority, you know, a significant amount of people. Uh, use the was it the Fire OS? Like yeah. they they do sell. Like I could see developers taking advantage of it. And generally, I, I also think it's cool for a company to say to you know try something new with right. device interfaces. Mm -hmm. Well, moving on to another type of device interface, uh, mm -hmm. the Surface Three launched this week. The Surface Three Pro or Pro Three. So um, this is Microsoft's latest attempt to win the consumer tablet hybrid space, and uh, we got a chance to play with it. Um, Ian, you saw it. What, what did you think of it? It was kind of big. <laughs> uh, it was nice, though. Like, the design is, is really well built. Yeah. Um, very sturdy. It looks, looks professional. You know what I mean? That's, that's the market they're, they're going after. Um, but for, you know, it's... It starts at 1050 bucks, and that's, that's for the Core huge. i5 version running 128 gigs of storage. So, you know, this is clearly not an iPad competitor. I mean, they still have the Surface 2 for that. Uh, this is more of a, of a laptop competitor, and yet they're marketing it as, as a tablet. So, you know, when the first Surfaces came out, Windows 8 was, was very new. The, they had a nascent um, app store that really wasn't you know, fulfilling its promise, but now they have a decent selection of apps, and in addition, the Surface Pro 3 actually uses uh, regular Windows apps. So, Doug, what do you think? Do you think it'll be successful for them? Uh, I think it will be successful because I, just from the amount of people that really enjoyed the, the Surface 2 Pro, specifically the Pro, not the uh, neutered RT version, uh, that there there is a market for that. Um, I think... It, it is powerful enough for people to actually use it professionally. Um, I think they actually are, you know, with the news that we're seeing, uh, I just saw today, uh, I don't know if we have this up yet, but they're actually offering uh, people $600 to trade in their their iPad to try the Surface Pro 3. So they're, they're trying to do that. For me, from a use case perspective, I think if you're looking at a, a, a laptop replacement, where you sometimes want it to be a tablet, maybe for multimedia use, it's something. I think if you're a creative person, I know the Penny Arcade guys use a Surface Pro and they love it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something. For me, 
I I want to keep my tablet a tablet and my laptop a laptop. I don't, you know, it is it is big. It's not that good of a tablet. No, um, I, I agree, and I, I think that it's also not meant to be used as much in landscape mode as the Surface Pro 2 or the Surface 2. So clearly, uh, Microsoft designed this uh, with portrait mode in mind because it's it's a 3.2 aspect ratio. Um, it's 2160 by 1440, so it actually has the Windows button on the bottom uh, of, of the uh, portrait area now. So what that means is that it's a lot easier, it's less awkward to use in portrait mode. It's not as tall like most 16 by 9 tablets or 16 by 10. So this is actually a, a great improvement for tablet users. It's just, it's so big, it's a 12-inch tablet. Um, I, don't, I don't see people actually forsaking uh, their iPads for this, especially you know if you have a an iPad Mini, this could be your tab, this could be your laptop replacement. I, I doubt people are going to buy this as a tablet only device. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be having the Surface Mini for that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. But, um, but I, I'm gonna say so. I, I think Ian was totally right that the industrial design of this thing is is really great, and I think what Microsoft has been able to do in what, two and a half years or three generations is pretty impressive in terms of figuring this out. Um, but I think, Daniel, you raise a good point. I don't think someone with an iPad is going to put down the iPad to pick up the Pro 3 because they probably like their super portable tablet use case. I really think this is for someone that is looking to buy one multi-use device rather yeah. than um, someone who's going to have a phone, a tablet, and a laptop. And I think, you know, as we see these things become more commodities and the, the use cases kind of solidify, it's it's going to be not so much which is the best device, but which kind of um, convergence of devices are you using. So mm -hmm. I, have, I have my super slim uh, smartphone, and then I have my, my go-to tablet laptop thing, or I have my, my phablet, I don't use a I don't use a tablet and maybe I use a, a desktop or you know I, I, I got my smartwatch so I never have to take my tablet out of my pocket things like that we're gonna see each individual kind of person make their their own choice for what uh, device coordination that they use and then the the real battle will be fought on kind of the OSs or the platforms and the services that best connect these devices rather than having one super device that does it all. Um, Okay. I agree because even even at a thousand bucks for the most affordable Service Pro three, you have to pay what a couple hundred bucks more for the keyboard. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's hitting. It's not at the tablet market. That's way above it, right? But it's somewhat nailing the the laptop market for sure. Totally. Yeah. Not 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 everyday guys or girls are going to go and grab this and say this is. This is this is it for me. That's that's a good chunk chunk of change. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's about two hundred dollars more. Well, so I got the so I have a I have a twenty thirteen MacBook Air, which is the best laptop I've ever used. It's <laughs> beautiful. Uh, just inter like beyond the design, but just what they've done with the battery life. Say, um, and I got the RAM increase on that, so it probably costs the same as a Surface Pro three with uh, the keyboard. So you know if if you're in a position where you really want a laptop and you, you want it to be tablet portable or you 
you want to save the money on buying a Wacom tablet because you're uh, a creative person or you really like Windows 8 for some reason, um, go for it. But yeah, well, yeah. I mean, th their entire marketing, uh, th their whole marketing campaign right now, at least online, is saying um, how much it competes with and beats the MacBook Air. So clearly, it's a little bit past our domain as a mobile site, but what's interesting is that the convergence of mobile is happening so quickly. Um, I, can, I can do so much on my phone today that I couldn't do a couple of years ago, and now we're looking at, okay, can we consolidate as many of these devices as we can so that I don't need to take around a tablet? I would really prefer, if I want to have a, uh, an iPad, I would prefer not to have to, I mean, ideally, um, you know, I know that there are a lot of guys who say uh, that there's a reason the iPad has stayed siloed and that its, its experience is so different to, the, to OS X. But really, if I didn't have to travel with an iPad, I wouldn't. I, I don't want a tablet, a phone, and a laptop. I just want a, a phone that's big enough and powerful enough to replace my tablet plus a laptop for all my work stuff. And, and we're already seeing that barrier breakdown with Yosemite and iOS 8, right? So and maybe that's a good transition to talk about Google I.O., which is happening this week. So we've already yeah. seen how Apple is approaching uh, the convergence of their hardware with their, with their OSs and software. Um, we talked a bit about Google's um, leaked design directive and, and how that scales even beyond... Um, just the, their own hardware devices, but one of the big things that we wrote about this week that's going to be most likely revealed at I.O. is more details around Android Wear. Right. And uh, I'm just wondering what you guys think of, like, you know, we're talking about mobile expanding beyond smartphones, and wearables is a big thing. So I, I don't know. I, I'm so agnostic on this stuff. I'm going to leave it up to you guys to have a take. Well, I, I'm going to... Ian, do you want to have a, a, a last word before you go? Sure. Uh, after this, I'm gonna have to, to bolt and feed my little boy. Um, but where I think wearables has been in this interesting time, right? Remember when Motorola came out with their smartwatch? I forget what it's called. The Moto, 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 Moto something as a smartwatch a few years ago, and it failed miserably. And then Sony did a smartwatch. And now I think the time is potentially right. You know, Pebble was really great. Still is really great. Um, and I think with Android Wear, it'll open up more talk about wearables, whether they're smart watches or smart glasses or smart belts, smart shirts, whatever it is, right? Um, it'll just open up a whole new thing. And I think when, when and if Apple comes out with their iWatch, I think then the masses will say, hey, this is the next big thing, right? So I think everyone's trying to be in the game potentially before that big announcement. But I think coming up in, at Google I.O., you know, Samsung will potentially unveil their Samsung smartwatch running Android Wear. LG and so will Motorola, maybe HTC in a few months. So more people are getting into it. I think it's going to be a massive space, uh, and it'll be really interesting. I think more people will want to have the connected lifestyle that, has been talked about for years. So, yeah, well. okay, so I said, uh, yeah, are you, you going to jump off now, Ian, buddy? Yeah, I'm going to have to go. Thanks right. for the good time. All right, well, on that note, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks. All right.
Good night. So, so Doug, let's talk about um, let's talk about the the Android Wear space. So, in, unlike Sony, um, or unlike I guess Sony and um, unlike Sony and others like Pebble or uh, yeah, maybe not Pebble, better. but Samsung is probably the the biggest one in the market right now. Uh, Android Wear is mostly about mirroring your notifications. At the moment, the SDK is saying, let's talk about Android as as the creator of all this information, and we're going to send you little bits and pieces of that information uh, in the context of when you need it to your, to your wrist. Instead of letting you download apps separately onto your wrist that nobody wants or nobody needs. So I think that's the right approach. That's how I use my Pebble. I love my Pebble for its notifications, not for its you know tiny little apps that really don't do anything at the moment. Yeah, and I think so. The video that we linked to um, that they they're kind of using to set the I guess the tone or the context of the vision behind Android Wear is they're looking for uh, obviously contextually based notifications that are relevant to the wrist, but then the that micro engagement that you were talking about in terms of uh, being able to quickly respond, getting the right information and actual information on your wrist rather than seeing something that makes you pull out your phone, which I think is really cool. I think, uh, obviously, the, the the pairing is really important, but they also were talking about, uh, and they haven't revealed too much because they don't have an SDK out, right, in uh, iOS this week, in terms of apps that can run separately on that and how what they're doing with card stacks and different types of notifications. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see, but I think, you know, Ian, as he typically does, just nailed it and then dropped the mic before before leaving, is that um, a lot of these companies were trying to get into the wearable space and get uh, early adopter status in the market solely because there wasn't a de- there wasn't there hasn't been a demand for wearables at all or for smart watches. It was entirely driven on the fact that they had the the scale and the man- manufacturing ability to produce a smartwatch uh, for under $200, and these companies need a new segment to grow to to hit their numbers, so they, they threw stuff at it. And um, as Ian said, there probably won't be that broad-level consumer attention until someone like Apple enters the market, because it's news when Apple releases a product just because it's Apple. And I think there's a chance for... Apple to do something where they like they came in with the the iPhone. There was a lot of different smartphone and uh, feature phone manufacturers, and then Apple kind of came in and reset the expectation. And also, beyond anyone's expectation, um, reset uh, or accelerated consumer anticipation for those kind of devices. So you know, regardless of what competitors are doing. I don't think the broad consumer populace will really care until they have that Apple device there to kind of define what a wearable experience should be. Because, you know, Tom Emmerich, uh, long-time mobile SERP contributor, might argue differently, and, and you might as well, but I don't think we're at the point where people really need a smartwatch uh, or they're, that they're, it's such a demanding use case that people are going to be looking for it. And, you know, I think Android Wear might be a step in that direction in terms of this, this micro-engagement, but is that really enough to drop 150 bucks just so you don't have to take your phone out of your pocket? Um, no, I, so I totally agree. And, and I think the key with Apple is that the iPhone showed restraint, and a lot of their products 
show restraint. There is a thousand no's for every yes. And I know that that's a cliche now, but it's true. Because the iPhone didn't do a lot when it first came out, but that was the point, is that what it did do, it did more effortlessly and more uh, visually, um, more beautifully and more uh, intuitively than any other phone on the market at the time. And I think that the whole reason that Pebble is the best smartwatch on the market right now is because it does one thing really, really well. And it shows black and, or, you know, monochromatic watch faces in a number of different styles. It shows your notifications and it lets you scroll through them. And that's about it. I mean, even as much as Pebble wants to believe that its app store has found success, it's really not going to sell a smartwatch. The core functionality of a smartwatch has to be two things, that it tells the time and that it mirrors your, your notifications. In today's day, I mean, I'm, t I'm not talking about what the iWatch will do or what Pebble 2.0 will do, but I'm saying the smartwatch today is not capable of doing much else. Um, I think the next generation of smartwatches are obviously going to take advantage of all these new health-related SDKs and kits that have been uh, developed for devices like the iPhone, like Android. So that's what I, I mean. That's what's so interesting to me is that you know Samsung's tried so hard to make their Galaxy or their Gear Two into a health-related device, but you can only use it with a Samsung phone, and most of that functionality is already available on the Galaxy S5 itself. So, you know, you need something that's going to draw people in, and I think that's really what the, the iWatch will have, because it'll have all that connectivity, it'll have all that data that the other smartwatches on the market doesn't don't have right now. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a bunch of people listening or watching right now and just saying, like, oh, would you get off Apple's um, butts about... <laughs> I didn't turn that down a bit, about, uh, you know, like, how their thing's going to be the best. And I, I don't really think that, you know, what the device that Apple releases is going to be so far above what's out there. But I also do think that they're smart enough to wait until they can do something interesting to, to really add value rather than releasing to get in there early. And I also think that, you know, it's, it's almost a mirror of what we saw in 2007, 2008, where you have all these competitors offering different takes that are slightly compelling, but Apple's just going to swoop in with this huge force, this unified and platform, which has only become stronger now, uh, and offer something that's going to have all these this network effects. And then Samsung's, like, you can get the Samsung thing, or you can get the thing that works with iOS and all the other platforms that you used. Oh, and by the way, in iOS 8, Apple introduced all these control mechanisms so that ecosystem that they're going to build around um, health and home security, fitness, and things like that are all going to be manageable through your phone. Um, so, you know, it might be a situation where Samsung's not going to be able to release anything relevant until Android has released the Android version of the wearable platform, which uh, developers can take advantage of those built-in feature sets and the, the network effect of there being one system. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a good transition to what we're probably going to see this week at Google I.O. So I'm going to head down there tomorrow. I'm really excited to be there. And um, I think that what's, what's going to be so interesting is that this is not going to be the Google I.O. of Android and Chrome OS like it was in the past. The last two years have really been about, I mean, to some extent it was about Google Glass last year. But uh, I think what was so interesting about Google I.O. this year is that it really is not about Android. It's about 
what Android powers because Android has become so powerful. I don't really think that Android is, uh, or that the iPhone is necessarily the best smartphone in the mar- on the market. I think that iOS is by far the most powerful platform on the market for developers. And I think with iOS 8, that has become even more true. I think that now, Google has finally realized that Android needs to be more developer-friendly. And Android Wear is a direct evolution of that consideration. It's easy to implement. It's basic. Android is so much better to develop for today. And developers don't have to do a lot of work to make their existing apps Android Wear friendly. I also think that there is going to be a home automation play and a car automation play in uh, at Google I.O. And I think that Google is finally understanding that there are ways in which Android can be a, a basis for so many other things. It's already so powerful. You know, this isn't about putting Android on a fridge and saying that it's that it's an embedded software. This is about them making the same Android version that runs on your phone leaner, more powerful, and more uh, modular so that they can really make Android into that six billion person OS. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and I don't even know if it's a matter of Google paying more attention to helping developers or if it just it takes a while to ramp these things up. And you see with, you know, the purchase of, uh, the acquisition of Nest, which just recently brought uh, bought Dropcam, and then the CEO of uh, Nest, uh, Tony Fidel, Fidel yeah. is now, now runs Google's consumer hardware business. So you see, and we talked about this in our previous tete-a-tete about how, you know, Google is bigger than Android. Android is only one aspect. Uh, Google's interested in data, but they're also taking the time to invest in uh, these new hardware spaces designed to capture a lot more uh, user activity and intent, which only helps fuel the, the revenue that they get from user data. So, you know, you see with them with Android Wear being proactive in a way that they weren't before. And, you know, I I know that the teams behind this is probably really different, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in the way that you're seeing uh, Android kind of merge with their Chrome OS, that there's going to be a project eventually to merge Android Wear with uh, Google Glass. Yeah, I mean, Google Glass already runs Android, so that's not a, that's not a surprise. Um, I also think, you know, Google's made a lot of interesting plays in uh, the home theater market with the Chrome uh, with the Chromecast, and you know, I think that this is going to show this. This Google I/O is going to show that the the company has the capability and the the hardware platform through Nest and through Dropcam and through all these companies that they've acquired, plus all the smarts that they have been developing through Android and through Chrome OS of the last five or six years. This is really one of the most powerful. Uh, computing platforms ever built. iOS is so narrow in scope. It only really, I mean, it's, it's not narrow in the sense that there are hundreds of millions of iOS devices out there, but Android really has potential to disrupt the uh, existing sort of um, outside of the smartphone market way more than, than Apple does. Uh, it's just a matter of getting manufacturers on board because we know that they're going to be clamoring to get on board HealthKit and uh, the the cloud kit and the home automation stuff. So yeah, it's but, a matter of well, you know, and that, that's a thing where you know, in the Apple 
infrastructure, they only want, they build uh, hardware to be the control mechanism for all these other connected services. They're not trying to own the services. Whereas you see in the Android ecosystem, there's a reason why Samsung is trying to do something with Tizen, Tizen. And there's also a reason why it's going to fail because at, at a certain level, when Android is, when Google has Android connected to so many different uh, use cases and the network effects make it so, it's just inconceivable to get to get away from it, all the OEMs manufacturing Android devices just become commodity makers. They're just hardware manufacturers. So you see someone like Samsung trying to invest in their own OS, but no one to make uh, Tizen apps when they can go build something with Android Wear that already works with their uh, other Android services, which will work with Google Glass, which will work with Chrome. Like, uh, we're going to be talking about this so much in the next year to two years about it's, it's all about how much uh, scale you have in like the hardware stack. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think Samsung has a an amazing hardware stack. I think that they have a vertically integrated company that nobody else in the world can can come close to, except maybe LG and Apple, and uh, that's very impressive. But I think Samsung is definitely going to toe the line because they need Android a lot more than uh, they are likely to admit. So. I think what will come out of Google I.O. here is that Samsung is already on board with Android Wear and that they're just another Android OEM to Google. They have a great relationship, and I'm sure if Samsung said to Google tomorrow, sorry, we're, 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 um, we're bowing out of, of all this uh, Android stuff and we want to go on our merry way, Google would say, peace out. We're, we got LG, we got Sony, we got HTC, we got Huawei, and we got the millions of other no-name OEMs that uh, you know we don't really need you. So oh, yeah. and by the way, Tony's going to make some great new Google hardware for us, so we don't really need you. Samsung. Exactly. Sorry. Bye. So you know, on, on that note, I think uh, we're going to try and do a podcast from when I'm in San Francisco, and we're going to follow up on what's been going on at Google I/O. Uh, and I think that you know this has been the last week or so has been crazy. I mean, the summer is usually pretty slow, and uh, what I've seen is that uh, it definitely has not. So, um, you know, if you got to the end of this podcast, good for you, because I think uh, we're also pretty exhausted. Uh, so I, I just want to thank um, Ian for coming on, because uh, he's, uh, he's, he's not much of a talker, so I, I, I think that uh, him coming on here is, is a big, big deal. And as always, thank you so much, Doug, for coming on and uh, embracing us with your smarts and your, your good looks. I hope that we actually get people to see this this time. It works. Yeah, we're and we're so we didn't we didn't say this off the top, but thank you so much for the positive response that we got oh, from the first yes. podcast. It uh, and we were expecting less positivity, so it really meant a lot. But we're we're very serious about the feedback, so I think uh, we've we've taken some steps to make this podcast more available through the channels that you guys recommended. But in terms of formatting, right now we're just uh, a bunch of pretty faces uh, talking about stuff. Um, you know, this week uh, we had the Menage Pod going, the, the three-way podcast. But anything in terms of formatting, topics we're not covering, uh, anything you want to see, let us know, and we'll we'll try to work it in if it's not stupid. Exactly. All right, guys. Thanks again, and uh, we will see you later this week. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and I'm Kate Spencer, and we are the hosts of Forever Thirty Five. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.